and he said, our roof's been blown in with the gelignite bomb. And there were fire engines in the street, ambulances in the street, and police everywhere. <laughs> and and uh, there was a little man from the Telegraph dodging around uh, with a photographer on his heels. And he, he said, do you think you've got enemies? I said, you know, I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> this is How Do You Sleep At Night? It's a show about people who face judgment for the things they do. I'm Sarah McVie, and this... <laughs> is Len Ainsworth. The 94-year-old Pokies billionaire wears his pants high, just under his arms. He's wearing a grey cardigan. He kind of looks like someone you might find playing the Pokies in a suburban RSL. But his focus is sharp. He's not missing a trick. I'm regarded as the icon of the industry, whatever icon happens to mean. What are some of the nicknames you've had over the years? I'm blown if I know. At boarding school, I was called Squirty. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I was small of statue. What about the Pokies King? Do people call you that? The poker machine industry? I don't know what they uh, call me. And do you think they're scared of you? Hmm? Do you think they're scared of you? Oh, they might be. They're probably waiting for me to croak. Every morning, Len parks his Porsche in the special car space reserved for him by the door of his headquarters, just across the street from Silverwater Prison. When we meet, one of the first things he does is threaten to sue me. He says it with a laugh, <laughs> but agrees to show me around the empire he's spent a lifetime building. As long as you don't do a, a knocking story. What's a knocking story? Don't you know a knocking story? No. Uh, where you condemn the industry or condemn me or some such thing. The point of it is to find industries that people have questions about and then let those people answer those questions. Yes. That's, that's the idea. And then people can make up their own mind. We're very, very accustomed to the digs that the daily press make from time to time. And the thing, significant thing about that is they never ever come and talk to us. They just print what they feel like. Uh, it depends. If there's no rape, murder, incest available, then the machines will do. We're in a room in Ainsworth headquarters which is designed to look like inside a club. There are poker machines everywhere and there's even a little bar that I guess that clients can sit at. Well, because we want uh, potential customers to understand what machines will look like in their own setting. It's intended to look like a club and make our potential customers comfortable. Do you want to um, show me how one of these machines works? These days you press a button and with a bit of luck the reels will go around. There you are. You can have a single bet which might be one cent uh, or you can bet 20 credits or you can play 50 lines. So in other words it's possible to stake 20 times 50 or that's 500 by 2, that's a thousand, that's up to ten dollars if you want to do that. The front room at Lenswork is empty, it's a showroom. It doesn't smell like the smoking room in this casino. It's hard to tell what time it is, hours could slip by and here there's no hint of the high life that you see in films. It's mostly just people in their trackies feeding money into the machines. 
Every year, Australians spend $13 billion on the pokies. And we have a lot of machines, about 200,000 of them, which is roughly one machine per 100 people. The states make a mozza, and it's revenue that's hard to turn down, even though there's been growing warnings from public health experts about the damage these games can do. And then there's the stories from people who say their lives have been ruined. I started playing pretty much as soon as I turned 18. I was putting my whole month's pay packet in. I started to just hate who I was. I almost took my life at 32. Len's life is a world away from Kate's. He has an estimated worth of over a billion dollars. To find out how he got there, let's go back to the start, the early 1950s. Len's a young man in his 20s, manufacturing dental instruments with his dad. I was busy making dental supplies and equipment, my father having been a, a dentist, and he made dental supplies and equipment as a hobby. He said I ruined his hobby by turning it into a business, and actually I did do that. Len and his dad wanted to make dentist chairs, but they didn't have the cash. This fellow, Joe Hayward, an Englishman, a very bright fellow, um, asked me whether I'd ever thought of making a poker machine. So I said, what's that? He said, what do you mean, what's that? I said, well, what is it? I don't know about them. And uh, so he said, it's got a handle, you put money in, you spin the reels, and you might even get uh, winnings uh, from it. Len and Joe would make the machines to get the money to build the dentist chairs. That was the big dream. They called their pokey company Clubman. I said, can you do it? He said, yes. Poker machines weren't legal yet, but it wasn't long before an agent came knocking. And the contract in the first place was for two machines a week. And within a week, he was back saying, could he have four a week? Then another week or so went past. He said, could he have eight a week? And then it became 16 a week. And then it became 32 a week. And each time, Joe said, can do. But Len says the agent had bitten off more than he could chew. He didn't have the cash to pay up. So he told Len he'd be merging with a fellow called Smith. Who was the son of Sharkham uh, Smith. Sharkham Smith was a bankrupt builder, a bookie and a boxer. He was a small-time criminal known to police for drug trafficking and his involvement in Sydney's illegal gambling scene of the 1920s and 30s. He'd gone missing in 1935 and his body was never found. But one day, a shark in the Coogee Aquarium vomited up his severed arm. So naturally, Len had some questions about dealing with Shark Arm's son, Raymond Smith. Smith was a person who trusted nobody and, uh, from my viewpoint, was uh, a bit unreliable, shall we say. Len told the agent he wasn't to be messed with. If he and Shark Arm's boy got up to any funny business, Len would sell his own machines. And he laughed his head off and said, you're only a boy. He said, you'll never sell a machine as long as your backside points to the ground. I said, well, some boys learn quickly, you know. And I said, uh, if you're right, I'll go broke. If you're wrong, you'll go broke. And I'll tell you now that you'll go broke. Len says it wasn't long before the money stopped coming. Smith came to see him and told him times were tough and that he was having trouble keeping up the payments. I said, well, uh, not compared with the difficulty you have if you uh, don't pay me on time. On the 20th of November 1954, at 8.10 in the evening, 
I had a phone call from Joe, who lived next door to the factory, and he said, um, Our roof's been blown in with the gelignite uh, bomb. And I know the smell of cordite. You'd better come out. So I went out, and there were fire engines in the street, ambulances in the street, and police every... <laughs> and there was a little man from the telegraph dodging around uh, with a photographer on his heels and he, he said, uh, who, who did it? I said, I've no idea. He said, do you think you've got enemies? I said, you know, I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> and that's what they printed in the, uh, in the, in the press the next uh, uh, day. Your first enemies. <laughs> well, uh, it was Smith, of course, that was responsible. He engaged a very well-known criminal to throw a, a gelignite bomb over the parapet. Smith obviously thought if he put me out of business, they'd have to buy from him. But what actually happened uh, was that everybody in the industry knew that Smith was responsible, uh, and so they preferred not to deal, do business with him. And we got the business. So that was not a bad uh, uh, leg up for us. And I guess it gave you the first taste of how brutal and ruthless the industry can be. I suppose I was surprised, but I'm a calm person. The police said to me, buy a shotgun and put chicken um, wire on your windows and uh, you're in the big league now, son. So I didn't buy the shotgun. I didn't put the chicken wire on the windows. And I certainly didn't tell my wife. She'd have had a pup, I suppose. <laughs> After the Gelignite bomb fiasco, things moved quickly. Len had ditched the name Clubman and Aristocrat. His new business was ready to boom. In 1956, the pokies became legal in the pubs and clubs of New South Wales, way before the other states. Queensland didn't get pokies till the 90s. The first thing I did was get on my bike and go off to uh, America and I think by then it was 1958, maybe 59. So I went to uh, America and my eyes nearly popped when I saw the machines in uh, Reno. What did they look like back then? They had lights in the front of them the same as we do now. In the old days, they had no lights in them whatsoever. I walked into the Reno Hotel and uh, I stopped, I was transfixed. I said, I've just seen something that will make me a million. He said, where, where? I said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But I might tell you, as I was going out the uh, door, uh, who they bumped into was Clark Gable. While Len was living the high life, his wife Betty was back at home in Sydney, raising their five boys. Once he'd taken on America, he hit the UK. And while he was there, Len met the woman who'd become his second wife. He moved her back to Sydney, to the other side of the harbour from his first family, and had another two boys. His rise and rise continued, until in 1994, it seemed Len's number was up. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I would never have been diagnosed had I not been undergoing regular checks. What was it like to find that out? Well, it didn't please me. <laughs> so I asked the prognosis. And the urologist said to me, if it gets aggressive, you'll be dead within the year. I thought the best thing to do was to divide the value of my estate up, which included the whole of aristocrat at that time, and uh, give it to my wife, 
my ex-wife and my seven children. So I divided it nine ways and gave it away. But then, after giving it all away, he got better. And his sons, his wife and his ex-wife got really, really rich. Two years after the cancer scare, Aristocrat was floated on the Australian stock market. The share price went up and so did all their fortunes. Suddenly they were worth 500 million each. But while Len had nothing left for himself, he had tried to protect his legacy. When he handed over the company, he added a clause. If his sons sold while he was still alive, he'd get a cut. When one of his sons did just that and didn't cough up, Len sued him to teach him a lesson. (laughs) That's exactly right. All his brothers said, sue him, Dad. I said, I don't need any encouragement. So I sued him. And the silly boy spent over $100,000, or it might have been a million, uh, trying to find a way to win the case. Did he learn his lesson? I think he might have. And do you have a relationship with him now? Uh, He loves his mother better. (laughs) Looking back on your life, you've done so much. You've created a global business. You've had seven sons, two marriages. How did you balance your work life and your family life? Not terribly well, probably. After all those years building Aristocrat into the second biggest poker machine company in the world, it's now out of his hands. But instead of retiring in his 70s, Len started a rival company, Ainsworth, where we are now. Wow. So we're walking through a massive warehouse that's full of machines at all different stages of their life. Some are just shells, others have screens, others look almost ready to hit the casino floor. Manufacturing is in my bones, really. I have to make things, that's what I like uh, doing. So I'm a, uh, a relatively creative person. I'm not an artist, but I can tell whether something's right or whether it's wrong for our industry. So I've been very fortunate in uh, that direction. Len Ainsworth has been walking the floors of his warehouse for decades. He wants to make sure that his machines are just right. Again and again, he tells me how happy his customers are with him, that his machines will take them from the cradle to the grave. In that sense, he's removed from the people who play the machines. He sees them as the clubs and pubs' responsibility. My name's Kate Seselger. I was born in Sydney. Kate Seselger looks like a got-it-together suburban mum. When she was 18 and first going to pubs, she started playing the pokies. Suddenly I'm putting money through in my lunch break, after work, thinking about it, dreaming about it, losing thousands and thousands and thousands. And, um, yeah, quite quickly got out of control. I can't understand the appeal of pokies, but I hear these stories and I wonder what it is that's pulling people in. Charles Livingston's made a career out of studying the same question. I'm a 
Gambling researcher. I work at the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University in Melbourne. What's your understanding of the way the pokies work? Well, they utilise what we call operant and um, classical conditioning principles. All poker machines utilise those principles. These are well-established, well-understood psychological principles which result in people essentially becoming habituated to their use. Ever heard of Pavlov's dog? That's the classical conditioning principle. The classical conditioning principle was discovered in the 19th century by Ivan Pavlov, a German physiologist. Pavlov figured out that if you fed a dog and at the same time played a metronome, a sound, a bell, whatever, then eventually the dog would come to associate that sound with being fed and it would start salivating even when there was no food there. So that actually works if you look at a poker machine. It provides lots and lots of that sort of reinforcement in the sense of sounds, lights, bells and whistles which go off when you get a little win and which habituates you to the feeling that you're actually getting something out of the machine. It's a reward. Operant conditioning? That's another story. This was first uh, discovered and developed by B.F. Skinner in the 1950s, an American psychologist. What he discovered was that pigeons or rats or other animals, including humans, would be much more likely to continue with particular behaviour if the rewards came intermittently, that is, unpredictably. So that means if you know you're going to get a reward but you don't know when, you're more likely to hang around for it. Charles sees pokies as the ultimate addiction machines. He says the multi-reels and multi-games that Len came up with have made the machines more and more enticing and harder and harder to understand. Charles says we become like Pavlov's dogs, physically excited just by the idea of that. Our objective is to design machines that are interesting and fun to play. Public health advocates say that poker machines are developed on two conditioning models, operant and um, classical conditioning. Is that true? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Uh, I think that uh, what they're trying to say is that we deliberately design pe- machines so that people would become addicts. I've heard that said. That's total rubbish. But they're talking about conditioning models like Pavlov's dog where you ring a bell and you condition the player. Do you, do you know what that's about? I do know about Pavlov's dog. I did a bit of psychology. Uh, but I think that that's uh, a nonsense. I mean, if you like something, you'll continue to do it. Say, kissing girls. Tell me the man that stopped kissing girls because he didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, our job is to provide entertainment, or as the English would say, amusement with prizes. And we do that very successfully. We make all kinds of features, you can see them downstairs, to entertain people. And it's really up to them from there. When somebody does have that problem, do you feel any responsibility for that? I'll feel responsible for what individuals do when General Motors feel responsible for the accidents that some nut at the wheel might have. And I think if you can't um, control yourself, whether it's gluttony or whether it's playing machines or whatever, then... This time you took some lessons. I do what I believe is right. What, what is that? What I'm doing. I believe it's right. I believe that I'm making a, uh, a lot of people happy and the number I'm making happy far transcends those people who get into trouble. And, you know, 
nothing is ever 100%. Surely we have to accept responsibility for our own actions. Mr Ainsworth, how much time do you think you've spent, or how many years do you think you've spent fighting in the courts? Probably something like about 18. I was fighting corruption within Queensland as well as in New South Wales, and there were questions of principle involved. So 18 years you spent suing people? Every bit of it, and it cost me many millions. How much do you think you did spend suing people? Many millions. What's many millions? <laughs> um, I reckon about half a million, three quarters of a million every year for the better part of 18 years. Yeah. And why did you think it was important to sue people that stood in your way? They weren't standing in my way. They were uh, painting a, a, a false picture of the industry. And... Um, one cannot just let that go by. Somebody has to stand up and fight for their principles. Oh, I'm driving out to see Len Ainsworth. I'm going to show him some of the recordings of the pokies addicts that I've spoken to. I'm feeling a little bit nervous about going to see him because the last time I heard anything from him, it was a very strongly worded email where he threatened to sue me. He said that I'd changed the goalposts of what he'd agreed to and he was removing his consent from being a part of the show. He's since decided that he will speak to me, but feeling pretty nervous about what he's going to think about what the addicts have to say about him. My name's Gary. I'm 65 years old. I actually spent $700,000 in seven years, so averaging $100,000 a year into the poker machines. I put my retirement money into poker machines. I got to a stage when I was in the Salvation Army rehab where I'd picked the spot on the roof of the building I was going to jump from for the best effect to make sure it would be, I wouldn't survive. So that's Gary's take on how poker machines have impacted him. What do you think when you hear that? No comment. No comment? No comment. Do you feel anything when you hear him say that he put his retirement through the machines? No comment. Okay. Um, can I play you the the other interview that's going to be in the piece? By all means. I thought that I was profoundly broken. Nobody held a gun to my head and made me put the money into the machine. But what we're dealing with with pokies is hardly a level playing field. He says he's just trying to build something that's uh, entertainment with cost that you're buying time when you sit at a machine, like you would with any other form of entertainment? No. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a really nice line, but it's, it, it's, it isn't washing anymore. The devastating outcomes from gambling addiction are, are far-reaching now and people aren't buying that line of it's, it's just harmless fun. 
it's not. You're shaking your head. No comment. Didn't we agree that you're going to respond to the things that people have said? That's my response. No comment. Is it is that offensive to you, or is that does that make you upset to hear those those things said about the industry? No comment. Okay, so just while we were listening to the interviews, you were shaking your head. That's that's as far as we're going to get. I said no comment. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, thanks for taking the time to hear these people out and um, and let me give you your right of reply. Thank you. If this episode brought up any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you want to talk to someone about a gambling problem, you can call the gambling hotline anytime on 1800 858 858. It's open 24 hours. Next time on How Do You Sleep at Night, we meet a man who killed two people. I lashed out. Yeah. Stupid. My fault. Dickhead. Idiot. Fool. If you liked this episode, we would love it if you could leave us a review and share it with your friends. You can binge all six episodes right now on the new ABC Listen app, or you can hear one a week on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey, thanks for listening to How Do You Sleep at Night. If you want a total change of pace, you should check out the ABC's brand new podcast on women's health, sexuality and relationships. It's called Ladies We Need to Talk and Yumi Steins is the host. Hey, Yumi. Hey, how are you going, Sarah? We need to talk about the mental load. Sure do. What is it? So the mental load, it's really hard to describe, but it's that sort of unpaid labour that women do in the home often, but elsewhere as well. So it's that list of groceries you need to buy. It's it's knowing that the rent is due and hassling out your flatmates to make sure they pay it. It's remembering to take out the garbage. And then when you add kids to that, it's a whole lot of other things too. The worst thing about the mental load is that it tends to be unpaid and it tends to be women taking on board most of it. So we talked to a whole bunch of women with a lot of experience in the world to talk about how the mental load has affected them. And one of those women was Tracy. Spicer. We've had our kids at the same school for about six or seven years now and I have not seen one parent representative who is a man. Now they're the people who communicate obviously between the teachers and the parents. Yeah. It's a huge job and it gets bigger every year because of the goddamn yearbook or the dance <laughs> or the house dinner, you know, there's always something else, this ridiculous middle class burden, you know, overburdening our children with stuff. And so last year I sent out an email saying, do you know what, it'd be great to have the class parent, an unpaid job, being one of the fathers this mm. year. And instead three of the mothers came back, three of the working mothers, and said, don't worry, we'll do it together. We can share it between us with our paid work. But not one father came back on that group email to say, I will devote some of my time to it. And why would they? It's so unrewarding, isn't it? It is. It's the jobs. So women end up doing the jobs that men don't want to do i got to say, Yumi, this was like a scary warning for my future. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you feel like you don't bear the mental load much at the moment. That's right. Yeah, I, I guess I've just got work and then home and social life. Um, look, I decided long ago <laughs> in share houses that 
I think a cleaner is the best idea for sanity and I'm lucky enough to have a job where I can just, you know, factor that in if I sacrifice on other things. So I don't really think about cleaning (laughs) and I don't have kids so I don't have to think about vaccinations or all those things. So I was just like, all right, women that are older than me, (laughs) teach me what I need to know about avoiding this in the future. Sure. And uh, it does sound a little bit like you're bragging, Sarah. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) So watch out for that. Yeah, it's the mental load. It's something that you need to get your head around. Absolutely. You can listen to this episode anytime on the brand new ABC Listen app and you should definitely download it because there's a bunch of exclusive extras from Yumi on there too. If you haven't already done it, go and download it now. Both our shows are there plus a whole bunch of other shows and live radio. You can also find Ladies We Need to Talk wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Yumi. 